This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irarangi onatangata o Manawatu. It is a Wednesday morning and we turn our attention on the catch up to the media. Um, and we have in the studio regional reporter for RNZ, Jimmy Ellingham. Good morning to you. Good morning, Fraser. Um, it's been a little while, I think, since we caught up. Two or, weeks. Has it just yes, been two, two weeks? weeks yeah. I, I thought Time's it was longer. <laughs> it's because I haven't seen you in the studio, yes. that's why. Uh, and in the, the office. Uh, Jimmy is working remotely under the red traffic light conditions. Um, but that doesn't mean that you are being ineffective. You're still getting around and uh, monitoring everything and well, reporting. it shouldn't mean I'm being ineffective. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if, if your bosses are listening, he's being very, very efficient. Um, let's start with, yes, because two weeks ago, I think we did touch a, a little bit more on Lake Alice and, and what was happening there. And I remember hearing this story on RNZ and going, oh, that's not great. Uh, Selwyn Leakes, the sort of the, the the main perpetrator of the Lake Alice horrors that went on, uh, passed away in Australia. He had been unwell for a while, but this was kind of a, a race to get a conviction before he may have passed away. That's right, and that race was uh, lost. Selwyn Leakes was 92. He was the head Psy, uh, psych- psychiatrist. I always mm-hmm. get psychiatrist and psychologist <laughs> mixed up. He was the head psychiatrist at the Child and Adolescent Unit at Lake Alice that we've spoken about quite a few times. Yes. Because the, there was a Royal Commission into Abuse and State Care that's ongoing. And last year it focused on that unit that ran in the 1970s. Mm. And Selwyn Leakes was the man in charge of it. Uh, and as you say, the man really behind most of the abuse, if not all of it, mm. uh, that happened there. I was, I was, I was trying to be careful uh, in the lead up to this uh, if we needed to use the word alleged, but I think that ship has sailed. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we do need to use the word alleged, given the weight of evidence that there was at the Royal mm-hmm. uh, Commission. Uh, there were so many people that would come in and say that they were drugged by Selwyn Leakes, that they were given electric shocks by him as a, as a form of punishment, not mm-hmm. treatment. So yeah, electric mm-hmm. shocks can be used even now as treatment, although, of course, there's a separate debate about the ethics and yes. efficacy of that. And also there were alleged uh, rapes and sexual assaults by staff and patients on patients at Lake Alice with Selwyn Leakes overseeing uh, the unit at the time. But he died on June the 6th in Australia. There was a note put up on Facebook by one of his sons saying... Sorry, June or January? Sorry, did I say June? Yes. I meant January. Okay. (laughs) January the 6th in Australia. There was a note put on Facebook uh, by one of his sons saying Mm -hmm. he sort of died, uh, that Selwyn Leakes died, surrounded by family, which uh, talking to the people who, the former patients of Lake Alice, they say this is one thing they find hard to accept because, of course, many of them had family relations that were broken up as a result of being sent Mm. to Lake Alice uh, or or afterwards. So Selwyn Leakes, he was never charged with anything either. He was investigated three times by the police. I think we've spoken about this before in the 70s. The early 2000s, in both instances, no charges were laid. And then finally last year, after the UN pretty well ordered the police to have another look at the case, and there was that Royal Commission, there was too much evidence to ignore. Yeah. And the police investigation last year said, actually, we found enough evidence to charge Selwyn Leakes, but we're not going to 
because his state of health is such he had dementia, cancer, among other problems. His state of health is such that he's not fit to stand trial. Right. There's a school of thought, of course, that he should have been charged anyway, and the court makes that decision. There would have been the whole uh, rigmarole in a way of trying to get him back to New Zealand. But uh, I, for one, thought that he should have been charged, and Mm. you leave it to the legal process to see if he's... Uh, to see if he can face trial. Plus, even laying charges would have potentially given some semblance of justice to those people yep. uh, who have been complaining for 50-odd years uh, about Selwyn Leakes. Uh, Oliver Sutherland, who is an investigator, he, he's an advocate too for Lake Ellis uh, survivors, and he said that you know for years and years, Lake Ellis survivors and former patients haven't found justice, mm-hmm. but perhaps they might as a result of what the Royal Commission will recommend when it's Lake Ellis findings come out? It was a regime, actually, that, that, that we called probably the most appalling abuse of children in the guardianship of the state. But all those investigations led to, led to no action against Dr Leakes, and, and now, now he's died. Yeah, it's a pretty straightforward conclusion, that. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a man who's looked into this since the late 70s, I think. So he's, Good Lord. He, he knows and knew what happened at Lake Ellis decades ago. I mean, I feel depressed just listening, talking about this this morning, but dealing with it for decades. Yes, now all of a sudden <laughs> it had a lot to do with the, the survivors and former patients there. Uh, I spoke to Malcolm Richards, who was there for Lake Ellis for two months in 1975. He received electric shock therapy, which he says still has an effect on him now. He has memory loss. Uh, he talked about when he gave evidence at the Royal Commission, he talked about things like he worked as a truck driver for a while and halfway through a run he'd forget where he was going or where he was and would have to return to base. But like many people who went to Lake Ellis, he was too embarrassed to say why uh, he had these memory, problem, memory problems. So he'd make up something like he was sick or you know, that there was a problem with the truck, uh, that sort of thing. But he, here's what he had to say. If it uh, looked like he was going to face justice, and then dropped dead, well, that would be a big letdown, but we already knew he wasn't going to face justice, so him dying is a bonus. He's gone. He can't enjoy any more life with his family. That's the other side of the argument, I suppose. Yes, yes, that's right. Although Malcolm Richards and many of the other uh, former patients, I'm sure, would rather he'd stayed alive in a way and faced justice. Mm. Uh, There is one former Lake Ellis employee, which we have mentioned before, an 89-year-old John Corcoran, a a former nurse there who is facing charges. He's appeared in the uh, Whanganui District Court and will do so again in March. He's pleaded not guilty to charges of ill-treating children and will face a trial Potentially sometime this year, his lawyer, his defence lawyer, Steve Winter, says, given his age, we're all quite keen to get this moving quickly. Mm-hmm. So, so at a hearing in March, we, uh, we may find out when that hearing will be. It's, uh, yes, it, it's astounding. And you've got to remember, this is the tip of the iceberg as well. This is part of the wider commission uh, investigation. So this, this is a story. This might be a particularly bad one, but there will be elements of this story that are, have been echoed across the country, across the decades. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, that, that Royal Commission is sitting again at the moment, I think, in, in, in Auckland looking mm. at a different a different state uh, state institution. And as you said, there's many more. There was a boys' home near uh, Levin, which has also come in under the uh, scrutiny of the Royal Commission too. So it's not just Lake Ellis even around here. No. Oh, yes. Ah, well, yes. Uh, what a lovely way to start 2022. Um, although important for accountability and justice reasons. Let's move on to something a, a, a bit nicer, although it is pandemic-related, which is... Tiring, um, but sport. You, you're a sports 
fanatic in comparison to me anyway. Um, and sport under the red traffic light, uh, particularly in Manawatu. Obviously, things are having to pivot. There we go. I used the word. Is it on our ban list of words? That unprecedented uh, is another one that we t- might have to edit. Yeah, <laughs> we'll put something on the wall so we remember. Yes, in the studio <laughs> wall. But yes, yeah, sports. Um, the heads of people who use those words. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the sport under the red light settings. It's it's still going ahead, isn't it? At amateur to professional level. Yes, but uh, without crowds, of course, a hundred people are allowed in a gathering. Mm-hmm. Some sports, I think, may find a way to have several pods or bubbles of 100, but even so, it's still a, at most a smattering of people around the stadium, and we've got men's test cricket, the women's cricket World Cup, super rugby, mm-hmm. all beginning in New Zealand in the next month or so, so it looks like, at this stage anyway, that they'll be going ahead in front of uh, poultry attendances. Yes. Uh, speaking of which, yesterday I went to the cricket at Fitzherbert Park, Palmerston North, a one-day match between Central Districts and Auckland, where the Manawatu Cricket Association worked pretty hard to let 100 people uh, in which I was lucky enough <laughs> to go on for work purposes. Of I'm course, not, I must stress phrase course, it. Yes. I went for a, uh, to do a story, obviously not to watch, not to watch the match. Uh, but so you're only there for about twenty minutes then. Well, no, I was there the whole day. But <laughs> <laughs> I take my work very seriously, as you know, Fraser. <laughs> but uh, I mean, a midweek match like that is never going to sell out. But you'd no. normally get several hundred people. Uh, James Lovegrove, the head of the Manawatu Cricket Association, said he was thinking 800 to 1,000 people over the course of the day. Mm. And that sounds about right. It was it was a great day. There was 13 international players uh, playing from the two sides. Ross Taylor, who we spoke about a yes. fortnight ago, uh, who's retiring or retiring from international cricket, he was there playing a rare game in Palmerston North. It had everything about it that said this would be a really good day out mm-hmm. uh, for many people. But, of course, that's those plans have been... Uh, scuppered, haven't they, yes. by uh, by the red traffic light settings? But uh, although but I, I think we said off air as well, cricket's one of those games where uh, you do, you'd, you'd think the players themselves would be relatively yes. safe because you're miles away from anyone else. Yes, yes, and uh, I mentioned to you off air too over summer watching cricket from Australia. Mm. There were the measures they went to over there to have teammates distancing from each other who yes. couldn't sit with their teammates on the sideline. Uh, no high fives. There were sort of elbow yes. bumps, that sort of thing. But but you're right. There's no re- unlike other sports. There's no reason really to come into contact mm-hmm. with someone in cricket. Sometimes you might be close if you run past them, or you you're the umpire and you mm-hmm. run past uh, the batsman or the bowler. But even even things like the umpires can't hold the bowler's hat at the moment. That has to be done by a fieldsman to minimise the contact Good Lord. Uh, between people. But yeah, James Lovegrove from Manawatu Cricket did very well to let a hundred people. Uh, into the ground. We had a special fenced-off area. Uh, it didn't mean that, um, see, this work was a bit tough because I had to work under a tree <laughs> <laughs> rather than your normal uh, media box, um, although I did also uh, sneak into a, the nearby hockey pavilion to, to use the power <laughs> at one stage. And, there, yeah, there was no – normally you have vendors selling food and ice creams. There was none of that. There was mm-hmm. a barbecue, uh, that sort of thing. So it felt very different. But uh, around the ground I caught up with a few people to see what they thought yeah, it's a little bit different, a little bit quieter atmosphere, and um, you know, it all seems a bit strange. We've got so much room for so few of us. More room under the trees yeah, exactly. that you can still keep quiet and uh, and cool, which is great. But it is it is a shame for the players, I think. I wonder what it's like for the players actually, because they're without the sort of that energy to pick them up. It's a completely different experience. I think the players feed off the crowd, and the crowd feed off the players. I'm looking forward to the future when we do have our crowds back. 
More room under the trees. <laughs> and that was right. It was actually very roomy yesterday, but I, I think I'd rather have the atmosphere mm-hmm. and the buzz of having uh, more people there. Um, the third man in that, uh, in that little clip was a man called Roger McEwen who used to play cricket for Manawatu so uh, he, he would I don't know if Manawatu's ever got huge crowds but at least he, he I think he played for Young New Zealand too so he'd know what it's like to play in front of spectators and perhaps perform yeah, yeah. Uh, for an audience well I mean that's the same with every sport there yes. is a performance aspect you always and, and same in the arts and like I play in bands and things you just get that little bit more energy when you're in front of people who are enjoying what you're doing oh, or hating it of course you do though yes <laughs> yes but either way just having some emotion and i spoke to a sports psychologist yesterday gary hermanson who used to live in palmerston north and now lives in hawke's bay he's a former first class cricket and rugby player so he does know about mm-hmm. uh, playing in front of crowds but he yeah, he said athletes are just going to have to find a way to adapt but it will be hard and he said they've got to block out the distraction of Sometimes they have to block out a crowd, as we saw in the Australian Open tennis uh, several times, with the crowd really getting behind the Australians and the doubles. But they might have to block out the distraction of having no crowd. Yes. And all of a sudden, and I noticed this at the cricket yesterday, you could hear every conversation from the cricketers some, sometimes 100 metres away. Oh. But you could hear everything that was said, which of course... All the sledging. Well, well there was none. That was very, <laughs> it was very polite, you know, sort of things like, can you bring me a drink, that, yeah. that sort of thing. But you, can, you can't normally hear that. Yeah. So all of a sudden it's, a different, it's different to what you're, you're used to. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Gary Hermanson said too that the home crowd effect, there ha- it has been proven that if two teams are evenly matched, so if there's a mismatch, it's not going to have much effect, but if teams are evenly matched playing at home, does make a difference yeah. because you've got that massive support. And he said that New Zealand cricket teams, the men's cricket team in the past, have performed better in home World Cups than they have away, which is true. The women's cricket team have only won one World Cup, and that was in New Zealand. Yeah. And, of course, the All Blacks, two World Cup wins at home, including the 2011 final. I don't know if you remember mm. this, Fraser. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's, it's the oval ball game, not your round. <laughs> no, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I have a preference like. for the oval ball. Oh, do you? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so in that uh, final in 2011 where the All Blacks held off against France for mm. what seemed like ever, yes. potentially lifted a bit by the crowd. So that will be interesting to see how that goes. We don't know how long we'll be under these settings or if they'll be adjusted, but the Women's Cricket World Cup starts in early March. So potentially, and this is a bit disappointing, a world event will go ahead without many people watching, mm-hmm. uh, similar to your summer soccer. Yes, uh, well, yeah, uh, yes, that was uh, an interesting one. They divide arena, uh, the Central Energy Trust arena pitches into two separate event spaces. Mm. So the, I think theoretically that means there was like 200 people, which, you know, when there are four six-a-side games on each side, plus subs, referees, you know, the numbers add up. Uh, but everyone's trying their best. But I think Omicron is, uh, in particular, uh, it just it doesn't uh, recognise how careful you're being. If it can find a way in, it will find a way in. Yeah, um, yes. And last week, uh, my former colleague Matthew Dallas, I heard him talk about the cases here. Five mm. cases now mm-hmm. in the mid-central in Palmerston North. Yes. Uh, over the weekend, too, I did some reporting about how there was a wastewater, positive wastewater sample in Dannyburg. Yes. And at this point, there's still been no positive test out there. Mm. Over the weekend on Sunday, for example, in Tararua, they had extra testing clinics open extra hours to mm. try to encourage people 
there. But of the five cases, we had the two. We had one originally, didn't we? Yes. And then last week, there was a third who was the Horizons yes. Regional Council employee who after, and uh, summer soccer player. Yes. Uh, well, that's the thing. I had to. I have to acknowledge uh, how well that was handled, quite honestly, because Horizons, yeah, no one simply relied on the contact tracers to take over and deal with it. Arena Summer Soccer sent emails out to all of the teams. Uh, Horizons, I think, were tweeting that they 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 had a case. Everyone was very open. Yes, and, and Horizons put out a very uh, very detailed media release pretty pretty quickly mm-hmm. on the, on Thursday morning. I think that was. And there's been two cases since, and there's locations of interest, buses, which seems to be a bit of a worry. It was Gisborne to Napier and Napier to Palmerston North. Mm-hmm. But the whole Napier to Wellington trip was a location of interest <laughs> because I guess being confined in, yeah. in, a, in a bus, you wonder about public transport. But, of course, if it's the only way to get around yeah. – you might not have a choice in some cases. Now, uh, if you are uh, in Palmerston North or, or wider Manawatu and you even have the merest suspicion uh, that you might have been next to a location of interest, do go and get a test. Uh, how, how many tests have you had? I've just had one, and that's when I was doing a story last year yes. in Woodville when there was a Delta case mm-hmm. uh, over there. Um, it's not overly pleasant but also it's very quick oh god have you you had many i I had my first one last week um not not 48 hours after my wife had pointed out you know we're like three years into a pandemic you haven't had to have a test yet i know it's because i'm a very careful boy no uh so i went and got one i got it on thursday uh, when uh, was it Thursday? Yes, when Arena Summer Soccer email came out, I thought I'll, I'll be proactive. I'll On the Main Street drive. Yes, went to the Main Street drive-through, got the test at one o'clock. Um, the woman said, and I thought this is good information because I said I've never had one. And she was shocked as well. Uh, mm. She said this will feel like when you jump into a swimming pool and the water goes up your nose. And bob on, that is exactly what it feels like. It is unpleasant. It doesn't hurt. Um, so yes, got that done, and I had the results. Five hours later, I had the text message at six o'clock at night that said negative. Well, that is yeah. impressive. So, yeah, it's completely easy to do. Drive in, you don't even have to get out of your car. It feels somewhat American in that regard. Um, I encourage everyone to, to do it. Just make sure. Um, you know, don't wait for these rat tests and things. Uh, if you don't need to, just get it done. Um, speaking of the, the pandemic, oh, we are here with uh, Jimmy Ellingham, a regional reporter for RNZ on the catch-up. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, stick Sticking with the pandemic uh, briefly, Mid-Central DHB obviously will be planning for uh, the exponential growth in Omicron cases. I think their plans keep being adjusted because I did a very similar story last year about uh, the DHB's plans for Delta mm-hmm. and now it's set to adjust again for Omicron, which yes. I presume would be something along the lines of more people infected. But potentially it seems to be less severe symptoms, doesn't it, and more people... In the vaccinated. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was something that was Indeed. pointed out to me by, I think, Tangi Utakeri on, on Friday was, you know, Omicron is less severe... For the vaccinated. Yeah, and in fact, I heard a man on, uh, an infectious disease expert on Radio New Zealand on Sunday morning talking about well, you're at your most, uh, what's the word, immune, mm-hmm. just after you've had the vaccination. And potentially if you've had, if you then have Omicron, 
uh, shortly afterwards, mm-hmm. you're actually at your most uh, yes. immune, immune from it again. Well, I mean, that, that's the idea of the mm-hmm. booster. I mean, the, yeah. the term booster, booster people don't realise uh, yeah. if it's boosting that very particular part, much like if you get the infection, you you know, in other diseases, you might become immune. Uh, I don't think you're entirely immune, immune from COVID uh, when you, if you've had it. Um, but you're certainly uh, more resistant to it and you can handle it better. So you're boosting that part of your immunity. Yeah, and of course, if you've had the booster, then you're unlikely to get severely ill and mm-hmm. potentially limit the spread, spread to others, which is the idea behind it. But Deborah Davies, the senior COVID officer there, said the plans are always being updated and that they've learned a lot from other DHB areas and overseas, so they can uh, piggyback on that experience. There's been an upgrade of a ward at Palmerston North Hospital, which allows more and better oxygen facilities. And so right. that's the main thing, I think, that mm-hmm. we've got. So if people do end up in hospital, there is there's that ward that's ready to go for people. We have a dozen beds that have ventilators, plus there's other ventilators that can be used when they're transporting patients or for child patients mm-hmm. who might not be on an adult ward, uh, that type of thing. But we, we are about 94% fully vaccinated uh, in mid-central and I'm not actually sure what the booster numbers are I think we perhaps could get that because I did read a story that nationwide I think it was only it was less than half of people eligible for a booster had had one mm-hmm. uh, last week and so um, it doesn't seem that high no. uh, when are you eligible Fraser uh, I'm next week yeah <laughs> February 18th for me right. uh, I, I went and booked it um yeah, and that's the the four month gap, which I I think it's an I find this one a little jarring because the 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 messaging out of government and the 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 media reporting are all you know get your booster, get your booster, get your booster. This is the way that we're going to. Get. All right, I'm booked. Um, you know, I'm made. I feel like I'm being made to feel guilty for waiting the the, the prescribed four months instead of just going and getting it tomorrow, which it's just a little bit unpleasant. And some countries have made it three months, I think, mm. haven't they? Uh, but we're still four, which was down from the original six. Yes. But um, I'm going to get mine next week. I haven't booked. I was going to do a walk-in, uh, given that my home office is uh, about 100 metres away from two. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so I might look out the window and see if Excuses? there's a queue or not. You have none. No, I do not. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Well, kind of move on. Uh, let's have a look at the uh, prison system uh, because the – sorry, corrections system uh, with their sort of pandemic preparedness, uh, a surprising number of prison officers uh, refusing the, the vaccine. And losing their job because mm. of it. They had uh, – prison officers had until – or people who work in prisons as well as the actual – Corrections officers, as they're called, or prison guards, yes. as people may know them as. Uh, 78 around the country, in fact, didn't meet the double jab mandate, which was early December, wow. and lost their jobs uh, because of it. A correction says that's 1.26% of their staff and 6,088 people work in prisons, of which 78 have lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. But the Corrections Association, the union representing uh, prison workers, and their head, Floyd Duplessis, said, yeah, it might only be 78 staff, but if that's one or two people in each prison, well, that's affecting, say, a shift a day. Mm-hmm. And he said that something has to give. Corrections are saying, no, that, that number's manageable. In fact, we've got plans to have, you know, under COVID, we've got plans where lots of staff will be off sick. So this is sort of, you know, this, these numbers fall within those plans. But the Corrections Association is saying, no, something will have to give and potentially programs offered to prisoners that aren't, the, the programs that aren't essential. They yeah. might be the, as they term it, the, the nice to have rehabilitative yeah. stuff. Literacy, numeracy, that sort of thing might be affected if there's no one to do it 
or no one to organize it. Mm. Uh, Spring Hill Prison um, in Waikato lost the most staff, 12. Uh, Northland, that does seem a lot. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a bigger prison. You yeah. Think that Northland Regional Prison, prison nine, uh, Manawatu Prison at Linton just two, and uh, Whanganui just two. Smaller prisons though, and once again, if you're losing, say, a worker for a day shift or mm-hmm. a night shift, that will be uh, that will be felt. Uh, yeah, Floyd Duplessis from the Corrections Association said that really, really, we can't keep going on. Unfortunately, there's a view that everything is to be BAU, and from our perspective, that's not the case. If if we don't have the staff, we need to turn something off to make up those numbers. But potentially some of those programs that are the extras, turn them off, leave them for a period. Mm. It is a big number, but at the same time, I guess, what can the correction system do? If a a guard is not going to get vaccinated and it's part of the process, then all right, well, off you go. Yeah, and the Corrections Association says it's hard to get staff at the moment in the tight labour market and it takes months to train them up anyway. So even if we replace them, we're going to have a a lag. Mike Williams, who's the former president of the Labour Party and now involved in the Howard League of New Zealand, he says, well, he doesn't think that'll make a difference, um, actually, Mm. and... He's, he says he's fully supportive of corrections' efforts to stamp out Omicron and COVID in prisons because, as he points out, prisoners, and this is true, are, are sitting ducks. They're, yes. They're not all vaccinated. You can't force a prisoner to no. be. Yeah, you can have a mandate for staff, but you can't uh, do so for prisoners. And he also points out there's fewer people in prisons anyway now, and it is the numbers are quite stark. There's 7,700 people in prison about in December, and that's down from about 10,000 in early 2020. And between, I think, 2015 and 16 and 2020, it was the muster was sitting at about 10,000. I recall writing a story, I think, in 2016 about the first time we had 10,000 people in prisons mm. in New Zealand, and now it's down 25%. Wow. But that, that, that's a bit of a success story for the justice system, isn't it? Or well, is it could it, be. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. We also have to factor in, don't we, that there's lots of, say, trials at court that are being put off. Mm. That sort of thing. I, I think it might be a bit too early. 2,500, though? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be that many, would it? But it might be a bit early to trumpet success. Yeah. Yes. Um, do we know how many of the prisoners are vaccinated then, or is that a, does that become a sort of privacy matter? It could be another story I should do, Fraser. <laughs> Just, there we go. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Uh, very quickly, we've got about three minutes left, but um, you, there's a, there was a murder that occurred 15 years ago, and the uh, the, the uh, murderer is up for parole. Yeah, two murderers. Uh, two, sorry. Two. So Stanley Waipuri was killed in his flat. It was the council flats on the Rangatike Street mm-hmm. uh, near Queen Elizabeth College in December 2006. And an apparent possible, I say possible, I don't know if this is ever really settled on, but a probable, I think, uh, gay bashing of Stanley Waipuri. His two murderers, Ashley Arnop, who's now only 35, and Andre Gilling, now only 32, which gives you an idea of how old they were 15 years ago, mm. just had their first parole hearings after 15-year minimum terms. Uh, neither got out of uh, prison. Right, okay. Uh, Andre Gilling is in uh, Limataka near Wellington, and he actually was found guilty at a retrial, so he never accepted guilt at the time, but has since changed his position and accepts he played a part in Stanley Waipuri's killing. Uh, Ashley Arnott pleaded guilty halfway through the first trial, mm-hmm. uh, so he did have a guilty plea there. Uh, both of them have got a bit of work to do, I think, according to the parole reports, which uh, which I looked through, and both of them will have no- more hearings later this year. People who have been in prison for that long just about never get out wow. on the first parole yeah. hearing. And often that's just about saying, what do they need to do? And in both these cases, I think the parole board was saying, well, they need a bit of guidance. They have things called release-to-work schemes or they 
they let prisoners out or take prisoners out to go to the supermarket, that sort of thing, to integrate them into mm. society. You think about what's changed since 2006. I don't even know if the first iPhone was uh, at least widely yeah. used. Just, just things like that. And I if anyone's watched The Shawshank Redemption, this actually explains, <laughs> yeah, the, explains the, the issues that they may face on, on the way out. Quite yeah, well. and I remember about 10 years or so ago, I went attended a parole hearing of someone who'd been in prison, was released in about 2012, been in prison since 1993, and he was talking about things like the internet yes. and, and, and that sort of thing. So it really is a shock to the system if you've been confined anywhere uh, for that long mm. over, over that time. And when you think of when you think of back in 2006, how you probably maybe lived your life differently then. So <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so when will they be up for parole again? Is Later it, this year. There's, okay. There's, there's no date uh, settled. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that killing of Stanley Waipuri. Uh, received a lot of coverage at the time. It was mm. particularly uh, nasty. I, I won't go into the details of it uh, here, but but it was uh, one of those crimes that uh, w- was particularly shocking. Mm. Uh, we are out of time on the catch-up this morning. Jimmy Ellingham, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Fraser. And remember, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Hopefully we will be back tomorrow uh, at half past eight with another edition. Do join us then. Bye for now. You're listening to NPR, Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo irirangi o tangata o Manawatu. It's nine o'clock. Community Notices on NPR. If you are a non-profit organisation who needs food for your community, whether to distribute or to cook and enjoy together, Just Zilch currently has bulk amounts of food available. To register your organisation, please contact Victoria at justzilch.org.nz. Community notices are a free service that anyone can use. Fill out the online form at mpr.nz or call 06 Manawatu conversations, recollections of the past, opinions about the future. Local people remember and tell their stories. Manawatu conversations every Tuesday at 3pm and repeated at 1pm on Saturdays. Don't miss it. And don't forget that the program is also available on demand through the Manawatu People's Radio website, mpr.nz. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.